We pray, Lord, as you open up the scriptures to us, Lord, that we would have a greater appreciation of and love for your mercy and your grace in our lives. May your word become clear and open before us, Lord, that it would re we would revel in it. We would be overwhelmed by the goodness of our God towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're continuing in our series on the attributes of God, and we're going to move on to two of them together. We've, up until this point, we've always just taken one attribute, but we're taking two because they're so similar that we can handle both together. The mercy and grace of God. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll take the justice and wrath of God. And I realize I probably should have taken those two first. I, right? Because they present, they show us our need for mercy and grace. But we're going to do it backwards. <laughs> but those are two very heavy attributes. And uh, it's always difficult to teach on those attributes. But they're, they're necessary. They help us to understand our God. So we will, we will focus on those next Sunday. So the mercy and the grace of God. Well, let's focus on the mercy of God first, and then we'll look over at the grace of God. First of all, the mercy of God. What is it? When we talk about the mercy of God, what are we talking about? And the mercy of God has synonyms. Not exact parallels, but synonyms. A synonym for mercy would be compassion or pity. The compassion of God, the pity of God. Here's a working definition of mercy. It's the ready inclination of God to relieve the misery of his fallen creatures. The ready inclination of God to relieve the misery of his fallen creatures. So mercy presupposes sin. There's no mercy if there's no sin. Because sin is what brings misery to all of God's creatures. In this lifetime and in the lifetime to come. The suffering we experience, the pain, the heartache, the misery is a result of sin. Sometimes not even our own sin, but other people's sin or just sin in the world in general. But sin brings forth all the misery that we experience. And so it's because of sin that we suffer in this lifetime, but it's also going to be because of sin that we suffer in the life to come. The mercy of God is that which relieves sinners of temporary and eternal miseries. Now let's look at a few examples from Scripture. The first one is Mark chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. It's the story of the man who was demon-possessed in the Gadarenes. There it says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And Jesus didn't let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. The Lord had mercy on this demoniac. Well, you remember the story, right? It's a very well-known story. Jesus and his disciples were going across the Sea of Galilee to the Gadarenes. When Jesus got there, he stepped off the boat and he met this man, wild-eyed, naked, he lived among the tombs. People had tried to chain him, but he would break the chains because he had this supernatural strength that came from the demons that were indwelling in him. He spent his nights and days screaming amongst the tombs and in the mountains, and he was gashing himself with stones. Self-destructive behavior. His life, in short, was a living hell. 
Wouldn't you agree that that kind of a life would be a living hell? The Lord met this man and had pity on him and cast the demons out of him. And so when the townspeople came back to see what had happened, they saw this wild-eyed, crazy man totally transformed. Now he's sitting down, clothed in his right mind and learning from Jesus as a disciple. And so I think we start to understand what mercy looks like. The Lord took this man in this miserable condition and he had pity on him and relieved him of his miseries. Miseries which came upon him because of these demons that were indwelling in him. So that's our first example from scripture of what, mis- what mercy looks like. Another one is from Matthew chapter 20 verse 30 where two blind men meet Jesus as he's going towards Jerusalem and he's passing through Jericho. It says there in Matthew 20, 30, that two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So here these two blind men are asking the Lord to have mercy. Well, think about their condition. They're blind. They lived a miserable life. Think about what it would be like for a person to be blind in the first century they couldn't really work a job. What can they do being blind? Their, their options are extremely limited. These two men are out begging. That's how they survive day to day. They sit by the side of the road and they beg alms as people walk by. So they're beggars. Just getting enough food to survive for another day. What a miserable life. They can't see their loved ones. They can't look on their faces. They can't gaze on a sunset or the beauty of a flower, or the ocean surf, or any of the things we just take for granted. They're closed off to the beauties of life because their sight is gone. It's a miserable existence. But Jesus came to them and he delivered them out of a life of poverty and misery, and he took pity upon them and granted mercy. He relieved their sufferings. So he had mercy upon them in their physical distresses. The third example comes from Luke chapter 18 verse 13 in Jesus' parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. These two guys went up to the temple to pray according to Jesus, but their prayers were completely opposite from one another. Remember the Pharisee's prayer? He prayed to himself, not to God, and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not as bad as that guy over there. I thank you, Lord, that I do all these righteous things. I fast. I give tithes. I don't commit these terrible, grotesque sins. Lord, I just thank you that I'm such a good guy. So it was a boastful prayer, praying really to himself. I don't think his prayer even left the ceiling. But then you have this tax collector. And it says in Luke 18, 13, standing some distance away. He didn't want to get too close to that holy Pharisee because he knew he wasn't fit to be in his company. So he stood way over here by himself. He was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. He didn't even feel worthy that God should look upon him. Why look up to heaven when he was so unworthy for God to have any kind of mercy upon him? And he was beating his breast because he knew that his heart was the source of all his troubles, this wicked heart. You see the difference in these two men. The first man is proud. The tax collector is humble. The first man thought that he was righteous in the sight of God. The tax collector knew that he was unrighteous and personally unworthy in the sight of God. 
and he said, God be merciful to me, the sinner, not a sinner, I'm the, the sinner, Lord, I'm the greatest of all sinners. He, he was convicted of his own sin and wretchedness. And he asked for mercy. So mercy towards the tax collector would be God having, showing forgiveness for this man's crimes and sins and rebellion to himself. So in the first example, we see God showing mercy by having pity upon a man who is cruelly demon-possessed. And the second example, Christ has mercy upon a man who was born blind of physical illness or just physical situation. In this example, he has mercy upon a man who is unforgiven, who is a sinner, who needed to be right with God. So it can be physical, it can be mental or emotional, or it can be spiritual. But all of these ways, if the Lord relieves the misery or the distress or the suffering of an individual, he's showing mercy to that person. So that's the answer to what is mercy. But what is it like? What are its characteristics in the Bible? Well, number one, it's free. It's free coming from God. God must punish sin because God is just. We'll talk about that next Sunday. God has to punish sin because if he didn't punish sin, he would not be a righteous, just judge. But God doesn't have to show mercy. He may or he may not, depending on his sovereign will. God's mercy arises solely from his imperial pleasure, his kingly will. God didn't have to show mercy to anyone. He didn't have to show mercy to anyone. Now, he has. Thank God he has shown mercy to millions. But there was no constraint upon God to do that. He could have justly punished all of us and sent all of mankind to hell because all of us were in the same awful condition. Sinners in his sight. And there's nothing that you or I can do to earn God's mercy, to deserve God's mercy. So if God decides to show mercy to any of us, it's purely his sovereign choice and will. And God's pretty clear about this in the scriptures. For example, in Romans chapter 9, we have a passage in verses 15 to 18 where we keep hearing this word mercy arising over and over. Let's read this together. Romans 9, 15. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. We see that the mercy of God is free. It comes freely from God. God is not constrained. We don't have a claim on God saying, God, you have to show me mercy. No, he doesn't. If God shows mercy, it comes from his generous heart of love and will. It's entirely the prerogative of God. So that's the first thing we need to know about mercy. God gives it freely, unconstrained, when he desires to do so. 
Second thing about mercy is that it is vast. In other words, it's great, it's abounding, it's, it's, it's plenteous and abundant. I'm going to quote some verses from the New King James Version because it uses the word mercy, and so it'll help us to understand th- this concept, that it's vast. Psalm 51.1 speaks of the multitude of thy tender mercies. Or Psalm 86.5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Or Psalm 103, verse 11, For as the heavens are high, upon, high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. Or Psalm 119.64, The earth, O Lord, is full of your mercy. Or Ephesians 2.4, but God, being rich in mercy. Or 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. Now think of those expressions. The multitude of thy tender mercies. Abundant in mercy. How great is His mercy. Lord, the whole earth is full of your mercy. God is rich in mercy. God has great mercy and caused us to be born again. All of these expressions tell us that God is not, he's not um, a miser when it comes out to doling his mercy. His mercies are vast and great. You could even say they're infinite when you see the, the, the greatness of the mercies of God. I mean, just look around at the world and see how much suffering has been relieved by God's mercy upon people. The fact that we... It, If you're sitting there today and you're not experiencing pain right now, what a mercy that is. (laughs) That's a temporal mercy that you are experiencing right now. Anything short of hell, you could say, is a mercy of God. Because that's what we deserve, but we're not experiencing it. God has shown pity towards us. God shows His mercy richly and abundantly. Third characteristic is is it is everlasting. The mercy of God is everlasting. Psalm 103.17 says, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. I said, think about that. It's from everlasting to everlasting on a certain group of people. Who are they? Those who fear Him. Believers. Lovers of God. God's mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. And in Psalm 136, 36 times there is this phrase, For His mercy endures forever forever so there's no fear that God's going to bestow his mercy on us and then take it away at some later date and instead bring his justice and wrath upon us his mercy starts from everlasting and it continues through everlasting and then a fourth characteristic of mercy is it is salvific or another way of saying that is it is saving it's a saving mercy because Titus 3.5 says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but what? According to His mercy. God's salvation has come to us because of His mercy towards us. So the basis of our salvation is not our righteous deeds. That's what He says. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but on the basis of His mercy towards us. His everlasting mercy. Now we've all heard of the person who goes into court 
He's found guilty. There's nothing he can do to justify himself in the sight of the court. And so what does he do as a last-ditch, desperate act? He says, Judge, I throw myself on the mercy of the court. Right? But a lot of good that's going to do. Because a judge is not there, and the court system is not there to show mercy to people. It's there to execute justice. Justice must be done. That's the whole purpose of the judicial system. So he can throw himself on the mercy of the court, but it's not likely that he's going to get any mercy from the court. He's going to get justice. But sinners can throw themselves at the mercy of God and say, Lord, have mercy on me. And God often grants mercy to any sincere-hearted person who's guilty of sin and convicted of his sins and wants to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, if they throw himself on God's mercy, God gives mercy to that sinner. Just like the, the tax collector in Jesus' parable. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And what did Jesus say? This man went home justified rather than the other. The sinner, the great sinner went home justified and the righteous or self-righteous Pharisee went home unjustified. The opposite of what the world would have expected. In Isaiah 55, 7, he says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. See, pardon is linked to the mercy of God. And if the wicked forsake his way, that's repentance. And if he returns to the Lord, that's faith. So by faith and repentance, this wicked man is coming back to the Lord. The Lord has pity and mercy upon that soul. So that's what the mercy of God is all about in Scripture. God relieving the suffering, relieving the misery of fallen creatures. And God has this ready inclination. He's ready to do so. Well, let's turn our attention now to the grace of God. The grace of God. What is God's grace? And grace is a little bit more difficult to explain. And I'm going to give three or four different ways to understand grace. The first one is a well-known acrostic, G-R-A-C-E. This is how I remember it, just because it's easy. God's riches at Christ's expense. It makes sense. Grace, God's riches to us at Christ's expense. Or the popular definition that we all have grown up with is unmerited favor, right? Another one that's close to that is the free favor of God. That's good. But then, I like this one by Abraham Booth, who is a pastor of a particular Baptist church in England in the 18th century. He defined grace like this. It is the eternal and absolute free favor of God manifested in the bestowal of spiritual and eternal blessings to the guilty and unworthy. That's a mouthful, but let me just read it again. It's the eternal and absolute free favor of God manifested in the bestowal of spiritual and eternal blessings to the guilty and unworthy. You can't have grace unless you have an undeserving person as the recipient of that favor. That's, they're connected. Grace is what all men need, what no man deserves, and what God alone can give. Now, there's a Puritan by the name of Thomas Goodwin. And this is the way he defined grace. And this was interesting because it showed me a, a whole different side of the grace of God. He says, 
There may be love between equals, and an inferior may love a superior, but love in a superior, and so superior that he may do what he will, in such a one love is called grace. And therefore grace is attributed to princes. They are said to be gracious to their subjects, whereas subjects cannot be gracious to princes. Now, God who is an infinite sovereign, who might have chosen whether ever he would love us or not, for him to love us, this is grace. I don't know if you caught all that. I'm going to read it again, okay? Because I think he makes a really interesting point. He says, there may be love between equals, and an inferior may love a superior, but love in a superior, and so superior that he may do what he will, in such a one love is called grace. Therefore, grace is attributed to princes or kings. They are said to be gracious to their subjects, whereas the subjects can't be gracious to their, a king or a prince. Now, God, who is an infinite sovereign, who might have chosen whether ever he would love us or not, for him to love us, this is grace. So his point is that grace really is love of a superior to an inferior. He's being gracious to that inferior. God is the superior. We are the inferior subjects. When he loves us, that's grace. Okay, now, is there any difference between God's mercy and God's grace? Because we almost think of those as being identical, but they're really not identical. I'll put it really simply. Mercy's getting what you deserve. I'm sorry, mercy's not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So like flip sides of the same coin. Mercy, I'm not getting what I deserve. God's relieving my miseries. I deserve those miseries. He's not going to give them to me. That's mercy. Grace, I'm getting what I don't deserve. All the spiritual blessings that come in Christ. Mercy is God's love extended to men in their misery. Grace is God's favor extended to men in their guilt. Mercy relieves our misery. Grace bestows God's blessings. Or I thought of a really simple way of putting it. Mercy takes away the bad stuff. Grace gives the good stuff. You, you think about it that way. Mercy takes away the bad stuff that we deserve. Grace gives us the good stuff that we don't deserve. Okay. Now, we talked about mercy and we said, what is it like? Let's do the same thing with grace. What is grace like? Well, interestingly, it's a lot like mercy. It's free, just like mercy's free. Because we've all sinned, all of us have lost any claim that we could have had on God's favor, His blessings. We've lost that claim because of our sin. We've sinned that away. The only thing we can really claim from God is His justice. God, yeah, God owes us justice. He doesn't owe us grace. No one can force God's hand to bestow His grace upon them. Now, why do we think that God's free when He bestows grace? Well, because of the Scriptures. God claims that He is. Exodus 33, 19. God Himself says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So God's clear. He's the one that makes the decision as to whether He's going to be gracious or not. Or 2 Timothy 1, 9. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, 
which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. The Greek there is before times eternal. So what was granted us in Christ Jesus before times eternal? God's own purpose and grace. They were linked together. God had a purpose of grace from eternity past, the scripture is saying. That purpose of grace comes to pass in Christ Jesus. God granted that purpose of grace in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So if God granted us his grace in Christ Jesus from all eternity, then from all eternity he had already decided the ones he would be gracious towards. So it's not a response to our faith. Sometimes we think, well, God's grace, he's just responding to faith. It's actually God's grace brings us to faith. It enables us to have faith in the first place. And then God does respond to the faith that he has enabled us to have. Romans 11:5. Paul writes, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Now the King James Version and the New King James Version puts it like this. According to the election of grace. In the same way then there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to the election of grace. In other words, grace and election are coupled together. They go together in the mind of God. Why did some believe, some Jews come to believe in Jesus Christ in the first century when so many Jews rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah? Paul's answer is, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. The remnant are those who still believe in Jesus Christ. Why did they believe? Why, why are they the remnant? It's the election of grace, according to Paul. So, sometimes you hear preachers and pastors and Bible commentators talking about God's sovereign grace. Well, this is one of the passages they get that from. Romans 11.5, the election of grace. It's his sovereign bestowal of grace. So, it's similar to mercy in the fact that it's free. It's also similar to mercy in the fact that it's vast. God's grace is also vast, just like his mercy is. Ephesians 1.7 speaks about the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2.7, the surpassing riches of his grace. Isn't that interesting? Riches, surpassing riches. And then in Ephesians 3.8, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Unfathomable means it's infinite. There is no bottom to this hole that's going into the center of the earth. It just keeps going. You never find the bottom. It's unfathomable. Or 1 Timothy 1.14, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Or Romans 5.20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. So the law came in to show men their sin. So that their sin would increase, at least in their own understanding, in their own mind. But where sin increased, God's grace superabounded. It, it overflowed over all that sin. So it's like the words of that song that we sang. If grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. It's abundant. God is rich. He's has surpassing riches. He has unfathomable riches when it comes to his grace. Aren't you glad that his grace is so big and vast? And then 
Grace is also utterly opposed to works. That's another thing we find from the scriptures. In Romans 11:6, which is the verse right after the one we just read, Paul says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. His point is that if there are works mixed in with the process of salvation, you no longer have a salvation by grace. So grace by definition has to be unmerited, undeserved. And when you start mixing works with grace, grace is canceled out. Grace is absolutely pure and free, and it's 100% grace, no percent works in order to be grace. It's like oil and water. If you've tried to mix those things together, you can't get them to mix up. No matter how many times you put it in a blender and you know, rev it up, the, the oil always goes to the top and it separates from the water. And grace cannot be mixed together with works. It's impossible in God's scheme and His plan of salvation. You might say, well, God's grace was 99% and I only added 1% of my own works or what I have done but if you add anything, I don't care how small the percentage is, you no longer have salvation by grace. Because you can start to claim part of the credit, even if it's only a sliver, a tiny, a tiny sliver of credit. You're, you're claiming part of it because you're adding yourself and what you have done to the equation. Another characteristic of grace is that it reigns. The Bible talks about the fact that grace reigns. Romans 5.21 says, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now what kinds of persons reign? Kings, right? Kings reign. Well, grace and sin are like kings. They exercise great power over their subjects. When sin reigns over a person's life, sin brings forth death. When grace reigns over a person's life, grace brings forth eternal life through righteousness. So grace holds a mighty scepter in the lives of the believers that it reigns in. It overcomes the obstacles that we face, the weaknesses that we are prone to, the temptations that come our way daily. And all of those things must give way before the mighty, powerful dominion of grace, the king who reigns on the throne in the lives of the, the Christian. Grace not only justifies us, but it sanctifies us. And not only sanctifies us, but it glorifies us. Grace will bring the Christian through every affliction and trial and trouble and pain and suffering that he faces in this life to the heavenly kingdom. It's that powerful. If grace has begun a good work in you, grace will complete that good work because of its reign in the life of the Christian. So take heart. God's grace has saved you. God's grace will keep you. God's grace will help you to overcome whatever you're facing today or this week. God's grace reigns in the life of Christians. And not only that, but grace also instructs. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. That's interesting. The grace of God is instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, Debbie and I once knew a, a believer in a church that we attended who was telling us that 
God's grace was so great in her life and in the lives of all, all people that, you know, if you're under grace, that sin is not that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. I forget exactly how she used to put it, but it was that kind of an idea. Well, you're under grace. You know, don't, don't worry about that. Don't worry about this. Um, in fact, well, I won't go there. But anyways, if you are under grace, grace is going to instruct you. But what will it instruct you in? In holy living. That's what grace does. Grace never allows you to make excuses for unholy living or sinful living. That's not the grace of God. That's something else. Those are the lies and deceptions of the devil that would tell you it's okay to live any way you want to live. Sin is not such a big deal because you're under grace. That is not the instruction that grace brings to a Christian. So repudiate that thought. If you ever get that thought, that is not of God. That is not what the grace of God teaches. It teaches me that I can overcome sin, that I can be more godly, that I can change from a life of sin to a life of righteousness. Thank God. Grace instructs us, and it continually instructs us as Christians over the course of our life. Well, let's look at another question about grace. What blessings flow from God's grace? What are the blessings that come to us because of grace? Well, the short answer is all of them. <laughs> they all come from grace. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, if you were to analyze Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 14, verse 3 is the thesis of the following paragraph. The thesis is, we need to be blessing God. Why? Because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing that comes to us in Christ. And then he starts to enumerate what those blessings are. He tells us about election in verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He tells us about predestination, verse 5, in love he predestined us. He tells us about adoption in verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. He tells us about redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood. He tells us about forgiveness in verse 7. The forgiveness of our sins. And he goes right down the line mentioning all these spiritual blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ. But the question we should be asking ourselves is, what's the basis for all of these blessings that Paul is enumerating that we have in Christ? Well, let's take a look. Ephesians 1, verse 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed... There's the freedom again of grace. Which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. There you, you come to the bottom, or the motive, the foundation of all of these spiritual blessings that come to us. It's the grace of God freely bestowed. We didn't twist God's arm. God was free in his bestowal of his grace and that's why he elected you and predestined you and adopted you and redeemed you and forgave you and sealed you with the Holy Spirit. And we could go on and on. In verse 7, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So grace is at the bottom of every blessing that you enjoy in Christ. 
What else does the Bible say about God's grace and what it does? It saves. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It justifies. Romans 3.24, Being justified as a gift by His grace. It strengthens the heart. Hebrews 13.9, Don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. It enables us to glorify God. 2 Thessalonians 1.12, So that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in short, everything we have is by the grace of God. Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. In other words, if you see anything good in my life, it's the grace of God. It's the undeserved favor of God. So folks, if you, if you see something good in your life, just say grace. Shout grace, grace, to the praise of the glory of God's grace. Whatever good thing, it's the grace of God. So let's break all this down. How, how would we conclude this, this teaching, this biblical teaching on the mercy and grace of God? Number one, realize your need for mercy and grace. Because God pours the golden oil of His mercy and grace into empty jars, not full jars. So we need to empty ourselves of any opinion of personal worthiness or sufficiency of ourselves. James 4, 6 says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble, not the proud. That's why the Pharisee didn't receive grace, but the tax collector did. If a sinner is ever going to be saved, he has to humble himself, realize his need for mercy, and cry to God for it. So that's the first thing. Realize your need of it. Secondly, go to God for it. Because God is the only one who has it to dispense. You can't get mercy and you can't get grace anywhere else but to the God who made you. So go in Jesus' name, pleading Jesus' merits, and say, Lord, here's Christ's blood. Pardon me for Christ's sake. Not for my sake, but for His sake. And then three, praise the glory of God's grace. That's what Paul was telling us in Ephesians 1. All these blessings come to us to the praise of the glory of the grace of God. Do you ever praise God for His grace in your life? We ought to. When you think of how good God has been to you, Praise Him for His grace. And not just His grace, but the glory. The glory of His grace. It's been glorious to you and to me. Four, consecrate yourself to God because of His grace. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Why? Are we to consecrate ourselves to God? I urge you by the mercies of God to do this. And so Paul has just been enumerating the mercies of God in chapters 1 through 11. He comes to chapter 12 and he says, Therefore, because of these great mercies you have experienced, I urge you to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. The mercy and the grace of God should not cause us to feel lax 
and our dedication to God, but they should urge us to greater consecration to His will and to do His service. So consecrate yourself to God, brothers and sisters. Have you received God's mercy? Are you a beneficiary of God's grace? Then give yourself to Him. Dedicate your body. Present your body to God as a living act of worship to Him, a living sacrifice. Number five, forsake sin. Romans 6.1 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase? His answer is, God forbid. May it never be. If anybody uses grace as an excuse for lax living, they'll be judged by Christ one day for that. It's completely contrary to the will of God that we would ever use grace as an excuse to go on living in sin. So we need to forsake sin because we have received the grace of God. May God help us to forsake sin. May God help us to consecrate ourselves to God. May He help us to praise God for His grace, to, to go to God for grace, and to realize our need for mercy and grace. Have you experienced the mercy of God? The grace of God? We are such debtors, and we can never pay back God for this, and God doesn't ask us to pay Him back for it, but we ought to respond righteously with praise, with faith, with consecration, with holiness. Those things glorify God for His grace in our lives. Lord, thank You. We just, as a group, we just come to You right now, Lord, and we bow before You in our hearts, and we, we praise You for Your grace. Lord, You have been gracious to whom You would be gracious. Lord, thank you for pouring your grace out on us, showing us your compassion and your mercy. Lord, relieving our misery. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us with every spiritual blessing we have in Christ Jesus according to the greatness of your grace in our lives. Lord, may your mercy and grace hit home to us so that we would consecrate ourselves afresh to you right now this morning. Let's just give ourselves to God again right now, church. Let's dedicate ourselves afresh to Him, that He could use us, that He would use us in His service to do His will in the earth, that somehow our lives could bring Him glory. And even as we eat and drink soon of the Lord's Supper, may that be a time where we just give ourselves back again to the Lord as we remember what it cost Him to redeem us by His blood. In Jesus' name. Amen.